Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. This morning, we're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be picking up in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. And just to give you a little recap, last week we just finished studying the feeding of the 5,000. Well, Mark tells us that Jesus fed 5,000. If you read the fine print, he says it was 5,000 men. If you go to Matthew, he says there was 5,000 plus women and children that were there. So this is actually more like the feeding of the 20,000. And Jesus fed them all off of a little boy's lunch. And it's five loaves of bread and two fish, which we learned last week. It's not much food. It was five pita loaves of bread and two pickled fish. It is a little boy's lunchable. This would be an appetizer for you and me. It's only a lunch if you were in third grade. After that, it's just too small. But Jesus... He took that little boy's lunch and he multiplied it in his hands to the point he fed 20,000 people. And the scriptures say that everyone ate and was satisfied. Last week we learned that the Greek word for satisfied means completely full. They were stuffed. They couldn't have eaten any more. That is how much food Jesus created. And he didn't just make Uh, enough food. He made exactly the right amount of food plus a little more. The scriptures say that he created enough. There was 12 baskets of leftovers picked up when it was done. And the term for basket is really a lunch basket. It's what you would pack for lunch the next day. So you know every good meal you have a little bit left over you eat the next day for lunch. And that is the best lunch. That's the way Jesus did it. He created just enough to make a picnic basket worth of lunch, of fish and chips, the next day for his disciples. Now this feeding of the 20,000 in Galilee by Jesus, it uh, was a miracle that was unlike any other that Jesus had done. Prior to this, really Jesus had focused on one person at a time. Somebody was sick and he healed the one person. Somebody was demon-possessed and he healed the one person. But this was unlike any other. This was one miracle touching 20,000 people at one time. Jesus' popularity soared through the roof after this miracle. The Gospel of John tells us that right after this, the people literally wanted to make him king. They wanted Jesus to be their king, and they were going to overthrow the Roman government and put Jesus in charge. That is the popularity he has. And they're thinking, you can't go wrong. Free health care, instant healing, constant food, that's the guy I want in charge. It makes only good sense. But Jesus, he refused to be king. He didn't come to start an earthly revolution. He didn't come to kill other people. He came to die for us. Now today, as we continue in the text, 
we're going to see that the next miracles that follow are closely connected with this feeding of the 5,000 that is so important for us to understand. What I'm going to do is we're going to teach through the text and explain it, and then when we get to the end, we will apply it. And once we've taught through it, the applications become abundantly clear when we get to the end. So let's begin and look at this. Beginning in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, we find that Jesus sent the apostles ahead. Immediately, he made his apostles get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. You wonder. He's just fed 20,000 people. Everybody wants him to be king. But Jesus' response is to get the, the, the disciples, put them in the boat, and push them out to sea. And he does it immediately. Why does he do that? Remember, we have 20,000 people all wanting to forcefully make Jesus king. 20,000 people cheering, King Jesus. It is a very, very heady moment. Imagine what that would be like in a a stadium full of 20,000 people all declaring you to be king. How many of us would want to fight against that? Most of us would want to lean into that because the applause of the crowd are something that motivates us. We'd have a hard time saying no. But Jesus knows his apostles will very easily give in to the applause of the crowd. So that's why he puts them in a boat. He makes them get in a boat. In fact, the Greek word for make here literally means that he forces them against their will to get in the boat and he pushes them off into the lake. Because you guys are going to give in to the applause of the crowds. And he will stay behind. He will dismiss the crowd. Now, what happens at this point, once the apostles go off in the boat and we read the text, we run into what I call a geographical pickle. Here's the problem. He sends them off to Bethsaida. Now, if you were with us last week, you'd say, wait a minute here. Last week, Jesus went from Capernaum to Bethsaida. Show us the map, Jeremy. This was last week. We saw that the the crowds, they were trying to get away from the people. So the scriptures say in the Gospel of John that Jesus went from Capernaum to Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the right side. And uh, now we have Jesus putting his apostles in the boat and going to Bethsaida. It sounds like Jesus is on the wrong side of the lake at this point. And there's a lot of theological ink spelled in speculation about what's going on. I'm just going to give you my best interpretation of this, and I think I'm, I think I'm right, but maybe someday I'll find out I'm wrong. But that's all I can do is try and explain this to you. Last week, when it says that Jesus set out from Capernaum to Bethsaida with his apostles, remember the reason they were setting out. They were trying to get away from people, not trying to go and get with more people in a different city. So while they were heading to Bethsaida, 
it would be illogical for them to stop directly in the city. What would have been logical for them is to go to the southeast. Go ahead, Jeremy, and put that up. Because to the southeast of Bethsaida, right there is a wilderness area, a desolate place. They were trying to go to get away from people. Now, Jesus was sending his apostles, we know, ultimately back to Capernaum at this point, after the feeding of the 5,000. But the first city, if they were going around the edge of the lake, that they would run into as they returned to Capernaum would be the city of Bethsaida. The Gospel of John gives us a little different, a helpful explanation of this. This is the parallel account from John in John chapter 6. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat. They started across the sea to Capernaum. So they're going ultimately to Capernaum. It was now dark, but Jesus had not yet come to them. So go ahead and put the next one up, the map up there, Jeremy. Apparently, this is what the game plan was. You have the feeding of the 5,000 on the right-hand side where the X is. Jesus pushes his apostles off. They're going, ultimately, John says, back to Capernaum. But in Mark, it says he sent them off to Bethsaida. Apparently, what was going to happen is they were to go to Bethsaida. They were to wait for Jesus to finish dismissing the crowds. They were going to regroup at Bethsaida and then finish the trip all the way around to Capernaum together. That was the plan, apparently, of how this was going to take place. Jesus is getting them away, so take the stop at the first city, and I'll meet you there. But that's not the way things went down. Thank you, Jeremy. We read in Mark 6, 46. After he had taken leave of them, he, ended up, he went up on the mountain to pray. So it must have taken a fair amount of time to dismiss a crowd of 20,000 people that all wanted to make you king. So he ends up not being able to meet them at Bethsaida. He ends up going up on top of a mountain to pray. Now let's go ahead and show us uh, another map up there. It may not be as clear on the screen. It was more clear on my huh, computer screen. But if they had been somewhere southeast of Bethsaida in the plain area, the nearest mountains, you can see, are where the X is. So depending on how far south Jesus was when he fed the 5,000, this would mean that a mountain would be a mile to two miles on inland. So Jesus had a little bit of a hike even to get to this mountain. Thank you, Jeremy. Now you may wonder, why would Jesus withdraw at this point to a mountain? Why would he see it as so important to pray on a mountain? There's a couple things I think Jesus was praying for. One, I think he was obviously praying for his apostles. They would not just give in to the applause of the crowd and misunderstand his entire mission of why he came. He didn't come to be an earthly king. He ultimately came to die. But the other thing I think he was praying for was himself, that he would stay true to his mission. This week as I was studying, I noticed there's three times in the Gospel of Mark 
where Jesus withdraws and spends a night in prayer. And they're all at crucial moments when he could be very easily distracted from the mission that his heavenly father had sent him on. The first one we've already covered earlier in our study of the Gospel of Mark. It's Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Remember when he started miracles in Capernaum? And he was wildly popular in Capernaum. And the apostles wanted him to set up shop in Capernaum. We're going to make, this is going to be our new healing center. And Jesus got away during the night to pray. He came back in the morning, and while the apostles are all ready to set up shop, he says, no, this isn't why I came. We're going to go to the villages surrounding Capernaum and are surrounding the Sea of Galilee, because that is why I came, to go and preach the gospel. You see how that time in prayer sort of reorientated Jesus back to his mission? The second time is here in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus is could be easily distracted because he has the applause of 20,000 people wanting him to be an earthly king, not to be the one who will die on the cross for our sin. So what does he do? He goes up to the mountain and spends a night in prayer because his prayer time with his father reorientates him back to the purpose of his life. The last time is in John ch or Mark chapter 14, and you probably know this one. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. Right before the cross, he is praying, Lord, if possible, let this cup pass from me. But what is the prayer time doing? Reorientating him back to his mission, strengthening him for his mission. And then I thought to myself, if three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus needed to withdraw, to get away from the applause of the crowds and the pull of the world, to spend time in prayer, to make sure he was in touch with his father and his father's mission for his life. If Jesus needs to do that, don't you think we need to do that? Anybody else feel like the pace of life sort of gets you going and you end up responding all the time and not thinking all the time? You feel like it's appropriate to sometimes to unplug and slow down and just pray and, Father, where is my life going? What have I become at this point? Am I just distracted by the applause of the crowd or am I living the way you want me to live for the purpose that you have called me? Uh, it's a simple point of application, but I think this is a good application for each one of us that we need times to get away, to slow down and pray and talk with our Father. The story continues. At this point, the apostles face a storm at sea. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Jesus fed the 5,000. Uh, it was getting dark, so sometimes it was sometimes before 6 o'clock in the evening. Evening in this culture was considered usually any time between 6 and 9 o'clock, uh, the apostles, as far as we can tell, had gone with the boat to Bethsaida. They waited there for Jesus to dismiss the crowd. Jesus hadn't showed up. So they figured it's only a four-hour trip over to Capernaum. Rather than continue to wait through the night in Bethsaida, they'd rather sleep in their own beds. So let's go ahead. It's not that long of a trip. We'll head home. It's only four miles. And what happens at this point is what I call a Gilligan's Island moment. Anybody remember Gilligan's Island? 
the weather started getting rough, the tiny ship was tossed, yes, that's exactly what happened. This little four-mile trip turned into a complete disaster. Matthew and John tell us when they got on the lake here in this evening late hours, the weather began to get terrible. Matthew 14, 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. John 6, 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles... Four miles would have been the easy trip around the coast. They would have been back at Capernaum at this point if they rode three or four miles, but they weren't even close to Capernaum because the weather had blown them to the center of the lake. They were rowing, and they were completely off course, middle of the night, can't see what they're going. The wind and the waves are against them. Mark continues and tells us more about this storm. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. We're going to spend some time taking that verse apart and explaining it, because it's very rich. But let me begin by just showing you a little bit what the boat was like they would have been on. Go ahead and put that boat up there. Uh, you've seen some other depictions of the boats on the Sea of Galilee earlier in this study. Uh, they would have not been using the sail at this point. It was a storm. But these boats had two sets of oars on the side, so four oars, two on each side, and you could technically put two men to each oar. So you could have eight men at max rowing this boat, which would make a fair amount of horsepower. But this storm is bad. They are heading into the wind with eight men pulling in the oars as hard as they can, and they are barely making progress. Now, I thought to myself, have, have you ever been in a boat that's you've used like a rowboat going into the wind? Anybody ever done that? A couple of us? Yeah, you know what it's like going into the wind. I, this, as soon as I read this, was a flashback to summer camp when I was a kid. We had rowboats on the lake, and I remember the wind would come down and hit the shore, and when you left the shore, you thought you were the biggest stud on the camp because you were making great progress because the wind was at your back. You got to the other side of the lake, you turned around, and you knew it was time to come back and give your boat up, and then you tried to row into the wind, and it is very difficult because you feel like you're not making any progress. And guess what happens when you stop to rest? You begin going backwards. It's a very frustrating and tiring situation. That was summer camp for a junior high student. Imagine what it was like for the apostles this night in a raging storm making almost no progress, just trying to make sure the boat stayed heading into the wind. It says here, Jesus saw that they were making heading headway painfully. The Greek word painfully here is very descriptive. It is sometimes translated torment. It is constantly pulling on these oars. 
with no progress. And if they stop there, they're going to be destroyed. The same word is used in Revelation chapter 12, verse 2, to describe the pains of childbirth. So this is what it's like for these. They cannot rest. They are making no progress. And we're going to see later that they've been on the oars for about eight to nine hours straight in the midst of this storm. It's a fierce storm. They are totally exhausted. They are tormented. They feel helpless. And you know what was going through their mind, don't you? We were in a storm like this before. Jesus was with us, and boy, that changed everything. Because Jesus calmed that storm instantly. Jesus, where are you? Don't you care about us? Why didn't you show up in Bethsaida like you promised us? Don't you know what is going on with us? No doubt that is what was going through their head. But here's what the scripture says. Jesus saw them. You notice that? He saw that they were making headway painfully. But think about this. The Gospel of John told us they were three to four miles out in the Sea of Galilee. If Jesus was on a mountain to pray, he was one to two miles away on the interior inland. So he's four to six miles away from them. And what time of day is this? Night. It's dark out. Can anyone see people that are four to six miles away in the middle of the night? Absolutely not. So how does Jesus see them? With just his human eyes? Or with his godly eyes. They cannot see Jesus, but Jesus can see them. And Jesus has had his eyes trained on them the whole time that they've been in this storm. They think that Jesus doesn't know, but Jesus actually does know. I want to just stop and make a little application. How many times have we been just like the apostles at this moment? We're in a storm in life. Feels like this world is falling apart around us. And what are we saying? Jesus, where are you? Jesus, don't you know what's happening to me? Don't you even care? The scripture tells us that Jesus still has his eyes trained on you and trained on me. And he does care. And he is watching what we're going through. In fact, it's interesting, if you read the psalmist, he talks about this. The psalmist says, I lay down and slept, yet I woke up in safety, for the Lord was watching over me. God has his eyes trained on you, no matter what you're going through. It says that Jesus did show up to them. He shows up to their rescue in the fourth watch of the night, walking on water. Now, let me explain this. What is the fourth watch of the night? The Romans divided up the night into four sections for their watchmen, their guards. The first watch was from 6 to 9 p.m., 
The second watch was from 9 to midnight. The third watch was from midnight to 3 a.m. The fourth watch was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. The darkest and latest time of the night. Jesus, we're going to see, shows up uh, not early in the storm. He shows up late in the storm, which is why we can say they've been rowing in this storm for about maybe eight or nine hours, which is why they're so totally exhausted. Incidentally, I sort of thought about this. Um, It seems like Jesus shows up at just the last moment when people are totally exhausted, when they're at their wit's end is when he comes to the rescue. Not just in this scene, but in the scene of our lives. Anybody else experience that? Jesus doesn't come to the rescue oftentimes at the beginning of the storms we face. He comes to the rescue when we're at our absolute wit's end, after we've been in the storms a long time. That way we know it's him who's rescuing us, and we're that much more grateful for it. But notice how he comes in the fourth watch of the night. He comes walking on the water, it says. Now this must have been a sight. I have no idea what it would look like for Jesus to walk on water, other than the fact he wasn't in the water. He was over the water. I mean, some commentators, they think that Jesus sort of floated, you know, dry as can be in the middle of the storm, just touching the tips of every wave. Mentally, that's not the picture that comes to mind for me. I'm thinking Jesus, surfer dude without a board. Uh, He's wet. He's walking on the water. and He's sort of having fun with the whole thing. That's just the way I mentally picture it. But whether Jesus daintily touched the tops of the waves or Jesus surfed on the waves like a Californian surfer, I don't know, but this I do know. The Old Testament is very clear. There is only one person out there who can walk on water, and it is God himself. Job chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, speaking about God, who commands the sun, and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, or as some translations say, walks on the waves of the sea. Jesus just did what only God can do. He walked on water to come to their rescue at the latest hours of the night. Now it gets interesting. It says he meant to pass them by. Now, this has ended up with a bunch of people spilling a lot of theological ink. Why would Jesus pass them by? I mean, we know they're making headway painfully. Like, they're in the slow lane of traffic. Jesus comes by. He can walk on the water. It's not hard for him. So maybe he's going to be in the fast lane and just pass them. Wouldn't make much sense because he was coming to their rescue. Here's what you need to understand. This idea that Jesus was going to pass them by is a very intentional echo from the Old Testament. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, when God revealed his glory, it consistently says that he would pass them by, the people that he revealed his glory to. The very same language we find in Mark. 
Many of you are familiar with this passage from Moses where God revealed his glory to Moses. What does it say how he did that? Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will show all my good, I will make all my goodness, what? Pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Elijah, same thing. When God revealed his glory to Elijah. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. Now, what would it look like for God to be revealing his glory as he came to the rescue that night on the sea? Did he glow? I don't know. Possibly. Remember, it was dark out. Nobody could see him normally. He's walking on water, but how could you see him walk on water at somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. in the middle of the night? I don't know. Look what it says happened when uh, the disciples saw him coming to them. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out. And they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It says they saw Jesus coming and they thought it was a ghost. Literally the Greek word is phantom. They thought he was a phantom. They were completely struck with terror. They were uh, screeching and screaming in terror when they saw him, which maybe means he was glowing at this point. (laughs) But Jesus says, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And here is where it's interesting. When he says, it is I, in the Greek, it's a Greek translation of something from Hebrew. Just like the pass them by is from the Old Testament. It's an echo. It's another echo. It is I is, Jesus is saying, I am. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh, which means I am, or it's the simple name to be. Now here's what's interesting. When you look In the Old Testament, when God passed by Moses, he passed by Moses to reveal his glory, and then he revealed his name as the great I Am. And the same thing happens here. He passes by his disciples on the lake, reveals his glory, and then says, Don't fear, it is I, reveals his name. Let me show you in Exodus. The Lord passed before him, there it is, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, which is, by the way, I am, I am in Hebrew, or it is I, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So God reveals his glory, and then his name in the Old Testament. Jesus reveals his glory, and then his name here in this scene in the New Testament. And that the apostles have no need to fear because Jesus has been watching them. Jesus is now coming to rescue them. Then we find Jesus came to the boat. And he got into the boat and the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves 
but their hearts were hardened. As soon as Jesus came to the boat and he got in the boat, the storm went from a raging storm to instantly stopping. Does that sound familiar? He did this earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Instantly calmed the storm. And then there's an interesting part that is found in the Gospel of John that Mark doesn't tell, but I think it's sort of fun, so I'm going to throw it in here. Uh, In the Gospel of John, we find out that Jesus used the Star Trek transporter room. Anybody remember Star Trek? Remember, beam me up, Scotty. Yes, the transporter room. It takes you from one place and it transports you to another place instantly, completely. Jesus did that with his disciples at this moment. John tells us, and they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Well, they've been in the lake, in the middle of the lake, fighting the storm. Jesus comes into the boat, instantly stops the storm, and immediately, instantly, they find themselves at the land. It's like the Star Trek transporter room took place. And some of you are wondering, well, did that really take place? Here's my explanation for you. Acts chapter 8, this happened again. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? After Philip went and he explained the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, it says the Holy Spirit instantly transported Philip from there to another place. Star Trek transporter room. All over. You didn't know you'd find Star Trek in the Bible, did you? It's right there. Okay. Now, what we have here is the disciples' reaction. And this is what's interesting. It says they were amazed. In the Greek, what's fun is before this word amazed, there was actually three modifiers. So the answer is they were completely, totally, utterly amazed and astounded. They were blown away by what Jesus was doing and the miracles that were happening at Jesus' hand. Oftentimes, this amazement is positive, but here I have to tell you, it's an amazement that ends up in the negative. They are amazed at what Jesus was doing, but Mark tells us they were not putting the pieces together and understanding what these miracles meant about who Jesus is. They weren't putting the picture together and understanding Jesus' identity. Now let's read the last section. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. They ended up at Gennesaret. They were heading to Capernaum. Uh, Did they end up at Gennesaret because they were bad navigators? No. When Jesus, Star Trek, transports you to shore, you just sort of end up where he wants you to end up, right? He says you want to go to Gennesaret? Well, 
I'm at Gennesaret. Now let me show you where Gennesaret is, just incidentally. It's not far from Capernaum. It's just a little bit to the southwest of Capernaum. So that is where they moored, and that is where they went north from there. And as they were going north, back home, as people realized that Jesus and his apostles were there, they just were bringing the sick out in droves. Just droves. And the thing that makes it interesting is everybody wanted to touch Jesus. And if they touched Jesus, even the fringe of his garment, no matter how sick they were, no matter what was wrong with them, they were instantly and completely healed. The idea of touching the fringe of the garment, that goes back to Jairus and the bleeding woman. Remember that? The bleeding woman touched the fringe of his garment. And the fringe of his garments, we learn this. The Jews, according to the book of Numbers, the men were to have a piece of string on the corner of their garments. It was a blue string to dangle off. And it was, according to the book of Numbers, to be a reminder to them that they were God's people set apart for him. And so Jesus, as a Jew, would have that piece of string hanging off the corner of his garments on each of the corners. And all people had to do was touch one piece of string and they were totally healed. It's an amazing amount of power that is coming out of Jesus at this point. Now you may wonder, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? Let me show you. There's two things I want to drive home. Number one, Jesus is God because he does what only God can do. The disciples were having a problem. They were amazed by the miracles, but they were not putting the pieces together and realizing that all of these miracles are proving that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus fed 20,000 people off of a little boy's lunch. This means that Jesus is the creator. He created things out of nothing. Jesus can see them in their storm six miles away in utter darkness. Only God can do that. Jesus walks on water to come to their rescue. Only God can do that. Jesus instantly calms a storm. Only God can do that. Jesus does the transporter room, moves them from the middle of the sea to the shore of the sea instantly. Only God can do that. Jesus heals every disease, no matter what it is, with just a touch only God can do that. The disciples are seeing all these things. They're amazed by these things, but they're not putting the picture together about what these things mean about Jesus Christ. I have to ask you, are, are you like the disciples this morning? Have you been in church all of your life and you know these stories of the miracles of Jesus You've been amazed by Jesus, but have you failed to really put the pieces together about what this means about the identity of Jesus Christ? Today, we are in a lot of cultural pressure to say Christianity is just one among a whole myriad of other religions that are all essentially the same. 
Jesus is just another religious leader out there. Really? Put the pieces together. Did Buddha feed 20,000 people off of a little boy's lunch? Absolutely not. Did Muhammad watch over his followers six miles away in the absolute darkness? Absolutely not. Did Buddha ever walk on water? Did Muhammad ever calm a storm? Did Buddha ever transport people from one location to another location? Did Muhammad heal everybody who touched him by just touching the fringe of his garments? Absolutely not. Jesus is in a category all by himself. No other religious leaders in the world have ever done anything like Jesus did. And what Jesus did proved that he was God. Remember the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospel records, they are not fantasy about Jesus. This is the verifiable history about Jesus from the eyewitness accounts. My friends, I ask you, do not be like the apostles at this point. Do not let your hearts be hard. Do not just be amazed at these things, but put the pieces together. Jesus is completely different than any other religious leader in the world out there. No other religious leader has done what Jesus did because nobody else is God. We're about ready to remember this coming week the ultimate miracle that Jesus did that no other religious leader could do or even ever attempted to do died on the cross in our place for our sin and then rose to life from the dead. Buddha didn't do that. Muhammad didn't do that. Jesus is worth trusting your entire life to follow him. The other thing I'd like to point out is this. Jesus loves us. These miracles, if you look at them, They're all about Jesus loving and caring for people, aren't they? 20,000 people not willing to send them home hungry. Walking on water to come to his apostles' rescue in the midst of the storm. Healing the sick. Jesus is God, but Jesus loves you and he loves me. He loves us so much. Put this together. God loves you. He loves us so much that we're going to celebrate this week that he went to the cross, died the most horrific death ever created by men, became sin for us, soaked all of your sin, all of my sin into himself and died in your place. Because he loves you to free you from your sin. And then he rose to life to give us new life forever. These miracles tell us that Jesus is God, unlike any other religious leader, but also that Jesus loves you 
and that Jesus loves me. My friends, let us not be like the apostles at this point and hard-hearted, simply amazed by the miracles, but not willing to put the pieces together and understand the purpose of the miracles. That Jesus is God. He loves you. He loves me. He loves us so much he dies for us to save us from our sin. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for these amazing miracles that you did, that they're not fantasy, that they're history. Thank you, Jesus, that you were so good to rescue your apostles and that you promised to rescue us in our weaknesses and you will rescue us at our greatest moment of weakness, that moment of death itself where you will come and you will grab us, and you will snatch us, and you will transport us from what should have been an eternity in torment. You transport us home to heaven to be with you forever. Oh, you are so good to us. Thank you for loving us in ways we don't deserve. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.